One is you're making decisions with evidence, and the other is you're making uh, decisions with no evidence or no backing. Interesting, right? And that's that's your basic difference between being brave and being reckless. Hi, uh, really pleased to be here. I'm Paul. I'm co-founder of Grow Studio, and I'm the other half. I'm the other co-founder of Grow Studio, and uh, uh, what we do is we help startups commercialize faster. So startups go through a whole host of problems going from idea through to actually generating revenue for uh, their business. And we do this for startups, but mainly for organizations who have a vested interest in seeing startups thrive, right? So who are they? It's people like acceleration programs, companies like uh, VCs and investors. But I think most interestingly, and what we're seeing at the moment is uh, corporates, corporates who can see that startups or innovators have a play in their innovation ambitions. Let's talk about your personal stories as entrepreneurs. Um, so today, both of you are joining the Brave Marketeer, uh, the Brave, your Brave Hustlers. Um, so tell us a bit more about your inspiration to start your own brand and a key moment in either of your lives um, where you had to be really brave. Both myself and Paul, we're, we're from the world of, uh, of big marketing agencies. So we work with uh, global brands via some of the biggest marketing agencies um, in the UK, the world. And the story went like this. My, my role was, that I was a data guy, I was a data strategist, data planner. And what that, what that really means is I would advise clients, brands, on how to grow their business or grow, grow their KPIs using data as my foundation of truth, right? Um, which is what we emphasize what everyone wants to be. Everyone wants to be data-driven. Um, but here's what we found. Inevitably, uh, the entire marketing function was based on um, asking for huge amounts of cash from a brand, huge amounts of cash, and generally producing, you know, what we would say were marginal, marginal results. Um, not very exciting results. Now, at the same time, you know, Paul mentioned Airbnb, definitely one example, Uber, um, you know, uh, Facebook even, Twitter, Instagram. These are uh, brands that were coming out of garages and were scaling so very, very fast. And when you, when you, took, when you take a you stop and just look at what the, to the tools that we were using, even the B2B world was changing because of technology that we had never really used before. And it became clear that these companies that were launching these businesses were doing something that we as marketeers could learn from. We were the professionals. We were the, the high-flying agency pros, right? We should, be, we should be generating these results. But it wasn't us who was generating these results. It was the startups. And that's really when, as a data guy, I took that step back and just to evaluate what was, what was happening in this world. And then... <coughs> What they were doing was this thing called, quote unquote, growth hacking. Now that term's very divisive now. We don't use that term very often because it's not what people do anymore, it's just how they do it. But the principles of growth hacking were pretty sound and could be applied to across a sector, across any sector and any size of company. And the principles are this. If you're gonna add a very lean layer of measurement across your business, it's principle one. Principle two is if you are very clear as to what the KPIs are that you want to grow and how that layer of measurement ladders up to the KPI, then 
you should be able to work out where you can focus your efforts to make the biggest impact on your business. That's your basic principles of growth hacking. When you know where you can make the biggest impact to your KPIs, it becomes about how do we change, change what we do to capture that opportunity. So we, we talk about customer centricity, data from the customer, understand what it, what it is that we can do to, to, to achieve that gain. And the result of that is an iterative process that, that we could kind of take to businesses um, and work with them on to consistently grow a KPI on a week-on-week -week basis. And that really was a premise upon which we launched Growth Studio. And it, so it, it really came from a frustration of not delivering value mm -hmm. to clients at uh, big agencies. Where, whereas there was, there was this method, and there is this methodology that can be used for the same purpose that can generate far, far higher gains. Um, and I think as every brand and every company is tightening their budgets, as they should be, and every company is realising that there are other ways of doing things, they are recognising that this methodology that we brought to the table um, is probably a methodology that they not only want to use, want their agency to use, but they want to adopt themselves. And that's how we primarily work with, with the larger corporates. I think, yeah, obviously a similar story because we're there together. Um, I think for me, Ron and I have always been inherently um, entrepreneurial. We worked with each other about nine or ten years ago. Um, we had slightly different roles and, and parts in the industry, but um, for me it was a clear board frustration that I came into marketing because I like problem solving and actually working in the, in the creative and the marketing field with big agencies. Um, you're not selling those problems to be solved, you're selling bums on seats, essentially. You're not selling values to, to customers. And if you're, you know, example, Ryan was good, so if you're a media agency, a marketing agency, a digital agency, you're selling media, marketing, digital problems, uh, solutions, sorry. Every single problem looks like a, a solution that aligns with, uh, with how the agency is. And it used to frustrate me intensely where you'd go into a corporate, you'd see that they had really clear problems, but the solution that you needed to sell in was one that put your bums on seats in your agency and not what was best for the company. And I think when we first met up, we actually tried to pay Ryan for a data job and he he took me out. Trying to poach me, brother. <laughs> trying to poach me, but I grabbed him. Trying yeah. to into the entrepreneurial world. Flew up in my face. Um, and I think we both recognise that there is a massive problem in the industry that we're in. And for a really creative industry, the marketing agencies have got the most antiquated business model that hasn't changed for 50, 60 years. Um, we both wanted to solve problems and we, we found that there was a much easier, much more effective way to do that. Um, and it was difficult when we first set up. It was a new way of thinking. Growth hacking had been embraced by startups and people who were interested in Silicon Valley. They didn't really know how to approach it. Um, you go to a big agency and, and you know, we were threatening the agencies in the way that, that they were because we were, you know, it was the first time ever actually really challenging their business models, the way that the marketing teams did marketing, the way that the, the Business Insights guy used their data. It was very difficult for us to be able to actually pitch within corporates where we sat mm. because we knew we could add value across the funnel, across the entire business organisation by looking at numbers and, and working out what the, the, the higher end KPIs are. 
Um, but it was very difficult, very political to to get in there. Um, and I think in terms of going into corporates, you know, we've had a couple of brave moments. We've had plenty of stupid moments. But actually being able to sit with a C-suite, uh, a corporate or or government ministers and going, actually, you're doing this all wrong mm. and you are hissing millions of pounds up the wall um, with people that are very talented in some ways, but they're wasting your money. That sometimes has been, has been a, a thin line between bravery, skinnerity, stupidity at times, and, and pure brazenness. But it's actually, a rebellion at all. Yeah, but it's they're honest conversations that, that need to happen. There is a difference between a great advert and an effective advert. And I think creative agencies always focus on the great adverts. And you know, the way that's sold into the marketing at the end of the year is, is creativity awards. And actually effective rewards awards, sorry, are far much more important. And I think that's just um, between marketing departments and agencies, it's just a tradition that's been bedded down, um, which has been very difficult. I always found it morally quite difficult to put money into something that would look great but wouldn't build the business. Um, and I think bravery is having lots of arguments with people on LinkedIn and Twitter about actually how good an advert is and, and how effective it is. I'm currently embroiled in one at the moment. Um, but um, the second one, I think, almost contradictory to our advice earlier, and, um, you know, Ryan and I, we knew we had an amazing solution, but trying to persuade people that they had a problem was really, really difficult. And I think the way that we did that was a very untraditional approach. Again, going back to our marketing days, you would pitch, you would pitch, you would pitch, you'd finally, you know, you'd, you'd solve the problem that the people were looking for. We had solutions that we knew people weren't looking for. And actually going to market, going to industry and, and trying to validate that was, yeah, there was an appetite for it, but who would pay for it became the real crux of our problem. And so the way that we get into businesses is you know, we're small enough and um, uh, black ops enough to be able to go through any any door. We know we need to work with the C-suite and that's generally who we work with. Mm. But our way in might be through a marketing department, an innovation person, it might be through someone else. And we're... We've got the luxury that we're, we're able to do that. Um, I think in terms of your original question, which was around bravery uh, a few minutes ago, we've yeah we've had to be very brave and we've had to say unpopular things from our perspective. Mm. Um, we'll only work on a project or a client or a, a, a service where we know we can add incremental value to the investment that's been put in us. And it's been very difficult at times where we've known that um, either the people we're working with or the culture or the product or this, whatever it is that we've been get asked to help where we know that we wouldn't be able to make an impact on it and having to turn down um, potential revenue when you've got a team of people to pay for has been incredibly difficult. Morally, it's been quite sanctimoniously nice, but actually as a business owner, that's very, very difficult. Um, twice... Uh, in our history, we've, we've grown teams of people and we've then realised that the, the teams of people and the expertise we had in the in the team were starting to dictate the types of work that we were able to, to bring in and the types of projects we'd need to say yes or no to. Um, and that took us into the direction sometimes where we started to be an agency model, which was one principle that we both printed away from because you make decisions based on the bums on seats rather than the value that you're selling to the client. Um, and and twice we've decided to uh, to pull the plug and to, to scale back uh, based on you know, the, the, the forecast of work that we had coming up and, and the direction the team was persuading uh, the company in. And that was, 
that was I don't know if that was brave. It was very very difficult. You know, we we got the best people we could in the industry. Um, we became very friendly with them, very close, and they were like a small family. And, and having to disrupt their livelihoods by letting them go was was incredibly difficult. Um, but I think you know, from our perspective, we our, our morals and our principles are really really strong that that bait in every single decision that we do and everything that we we make and so when we are brave with our clients or, or people it comes from a good place and i think that karma's always paid off very nicely for us um, yeah very much so i mean i think i think it's uh that, that's a really key point you know we uh we did scale up we didn't want to i think well at least i didn't want to right what uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, we realized we didn't want to and it, 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 it took us, um, and we didn't want to because we were sacrificing our principles, right? So when we have additional salaries to pay, people to look after, we started finding ourselves exploring work that did not align with our principles, that we know work, we know are successful. Um, so, and, and I think we are also very conscious that of work-life balance and what we want to get from this business as entrepreneurs and founders, right? So, um, with that, with a with a view of where we want the business to go and where we want our lifestyles to go, um, we realise that we work really well in a, a different way that doesn't require uh, scaling up our team. That being said, our network is huge, and that's really where we leverage. So we we're also known as the people to kind of go to. If you want the best of the best in creative, best of the best in, um, you know, measurement, best of the best in a digital marketing, whatever that might be, we're seen as, as those people. But I think it it does it does kind of bring uh, bring bring up the topic of who should you work with, right? And that was a a key thing for both Paul and I. And I think it's also a brave decision to go into business with someone. I'll be careful here. Don't <laughs> It's a brave decision to go to go into business with someone, and that was a brave decision on both our parts. Paul and I worked together really well, and we do de-risk that because we de-risk that decision because we worked together really well. You need to have a huge amount of trust, huge amount of trust. It's like a marriage, right? And it's it's like a marriage that you can't get divorced. You're stuck with me, right? And the reason I was going to say the marriage I've always dreamed of, but the reason <laughs> the reason you're stuck yeah. with me is we share a bank balance, right? So our entire lives hinge on what happens here in this office. Yeah. Um, so that level of trust needs to be huge. And you're, whoever you work with, especially as an early stage business, but I think the same could apply in any team, is someone who keeps their shit together whilst you're losing yours is a very, very first principle, right? Uh, because you will lose your shit. People do lose their shit. And, and, and in times like that, someone else needs to kind of you need, to, you need to you as a person need to trust that mm. that things are going to be okay whilst I'm having a, a mad moment because the other person is, is there. And the second thing is it, it takes a lot of introspective analysis, right? So you need to ask yourself, what am I good at, right? What am I not good at? And when you start to think about what am I not good at, you start to go down the road of yes, but I can get better at this, or but I can develop this and what ends up happening is you start to realize that your own job role is growing right in order to create a successful business so you've got to ask yourself what am I good at what am I not good at and what am I happy to sacrifice now and say look someone else can do this far better than I can and that that's often a hard question to ask yourself 
but you have to ask that question in order to kind of ensure that your whoever you work with can do that and, and can bring that other side of other side of the coin. And the third thing is, and I mentioned this earlier when we were talking about corporates, you've got to have a very, very clear co-created vision. Every, everyone needs to be getting value from this. Your, your co-founders, but also your team. So to the best possible extent with your team, but certainly with your, with your co-founders, you need to have that clear, that clear vision. And you've got to be take, you have to take time out of, of your business life, busy business life, if things are going well, um, and it will be if you work with Grow Studio. But um, <laughs> if things are going well, you've got, you have to take that time out and step away from the business to just relate to your co-founders yeah. and just talk about problems, talk about the football, talk about other stuff. But you, if you immerse yourself in the data activities or the business, Things get pretty mundane pretty fast. Um, and it also allows you to have those conversations like we had. So we, 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 took, we travel a lot with business. Uh, so we managed to take a couple of days out to talk about where, where is, we had so many opportunities we could go in and there were pros and cons of each. We took that time out to discuss what do we want to do? What, what does a business need to look like in five years? What do we do about having to take on projects to support a team? that go against our values. And it's only through those sorts of timeout activities that we, yeah. we, we're consistently refining our own business and, and optimizing the way, optimizing our lives and the way that we work. I think that's a really good point. So um, I don't know if the fifth, fourth or fifth one, I can't remember where we got to, um, is actually why, you, why you're in it in the first place. I think we always wanted to run our own business separately when we, we re-met each other after many years ago. Um, we realized that there was a, a huge opportunity to capitalise on it. We, we did kind of fall into it accidentally. We had a couple of coffees. We got into a pitch accidentally, which we won. That created our first, um, you know, we, we realised suddenly we were an agency or a service or a consultancy. We did, still didn't really know what we did. That led to more clients. And before we knew it, we were, we were set up. But actually, um, I think fortune, I think our, our chemistry with each other and, and shared values and, and hard work has, has created what is Grace Studio, but I don't think we necessarily came into it the way most people would, which is let's get together, let's start a business and let's do this. Yeah. So it kind of, it, fought, it was very organic. It's very organic and, and fortune kind of led the way. But I think you need to think what you want to have for the business. What do you guys think that in terms of your hurdles within your industry, your challenges, what are they? Are they people who don't understand this message? Um, what, what sort of challenges do you I think it's, yeah, for, from our perspective, it's quite easy. No one really knows what they're doing um, in the nicest possible way. Um, I think when you come to start a business, you start a business because you found a problem that needs to be solved or you've always wanted to embrace that entrepreneurial spirit that you might have yeah. or you, you just find yourself by fortune or accident in a space where you started an idea and it, it, it becomes a business. Um, the tricky thing is that running your own business is really tough. Mm-hmm. You've suddenly gone from an engineer, a product guy, a creative, a, a whomever, and suddenly you're head of finance, head of people, head of HR, head of commercialization business. You're having to do 50 or 100 uh, things at once. And people also get very passionate about their idea to the detriment of, of uh, being passionate about their business. Mm-hmm. And so they don't really know how to commercialize. They don't, need, they don't know the priorities they, um, they need to focus on. 
And where we come in is, is help them assess actually if they do have a business or not, um, what the opportunity for that business is, how they progress from, from an idea or a, you know, a couple of teams or a product or a technology or a thing and turn it into a sustainable business and then connect them with the people that can really scale that. So that might be investors, corporates, governments. Um, does that answer your question? It does, yeah. But it's, it's also, it's also uh, very much, you know, we talk about hustling. Um, everyone is hustling but not everyone knows how to hustle. Mm. And we're entering a world now in the, in the space of startups where there is a bit of a methodology to hustling. You know, some people call it, you know, growth hacking. Other people, you know, lean is a way, has, a lean strategy has been derived from just a whole host of people hustling and that methodology has come out of it. But what we're finding now is um, startups and founders are trying to hustle. Um, they're not necessarily, they don't necessarily know how to hustle or what the word hustle really means, but we add the science to that. Um, and we do that in a way that's fast. The other challenge that we see is, and I think we're all privy to this, is as founders, it's our responsibility to work on the business. We've got to see the business grow. We've got to make sure we're making the right decision. But we find ourselves working for the business more than we expected to. And that's a disparity. You know, do we, are we working on projects within the business or do we need to kind of grow the business? And that's where we also get bored in quite a lot. So we help that founder take time out of the data responsibilities to look at the broader, broader picture. From a corporate point of view, because we understand what's going on in the sectors that we specialise in the corporate world, it means that we have a natural tendency to work with certain startups with an understanding of what it's going to take for them to launch into a uh, into the wide industry so bringing those two together the lean strategies the growth hacking approach and methodology and, and the mindset with the knowledge of the industry puts us in a really i guess yeah in a, an interesting position globally so, so give us an idea of uh, you don't have to name the actual brand if you don't want to but uh, either a corporate or a startup um where you might have helped somebody very big and somebody very small with their objectives? Um, so from the very big perspective, we're working on two, I'm going to try and be as anonymous yeah, as oh, possible. Cool. We're working with a, a European government at the moment who see the opportunity for um, the startup culture, for the startup economy, but they don't know how to do that. Mm. Um, and so we've been brought in as startup experts and um, people who are experts in, in um, Placing startups within huge organisations and getting benefits from both. Um, the challenges they have is that they've they know that startups exist and that's about it. They know there's a huge opportunity for their country and for their economy to to benefit from startups. They don't know how to start. They don't know how to merge that very traditional culture with a hustler culture. Um, they don't speak the same language. They've got different procurement channels. It's it's a complete clash of cultures. So that's one we're trying to um, fix at the moment, which is uh, causing a few grey hairs and, and late nights. But yeah. it's, it's a really exciting challenge because it is using startups to change the direction of the country. And for, for, for a government, they're very open. I mean, yeah. what, we, what we're finding is the Ministry of Economy um, of this economy, they, they, they recognise that they can create an ecosystem, but the methodology to make that ecosystem thrive is what's missing. So uh, we're working very closely with them as government advisors to try and try and develop some form of 
some form of approach that can be rolled out across universities, across um, business networks, and almost motivate and give people a path, those who have ideas or innovators, a path from to, that they can take their, their idea through to, through to commercialization. From a more corporate perspective, um, we, we work with numerous global companies, and they all have uh, an ambition for innovation. They're not entirely sure what innovation mean, means what it, and what it means to them. They don't know how to measure innovation. They're not sure how to work with external innovators, i.e. startups, uh, but they recognize that that is the, the way forward for them. So the ground is really fertile for us to go in and identify their business problems. What is it going to take for them to be the next leader in, the, in their sector and then find the right innovators? And then whilst most of these initiatives uh, in our space, they focus mainly around working with the startup and preparing the startups to work with corporates. We take a slightly different approach. We work with the startups, but at the same time, we've got to work with the corporates. We've got to align the two, Interesting. two together. The end result of, of this is not only have we solved business problems within a corporation, which means that suddenly innovation, this thing called innovation is measurable, right? But also there are startups who are now uh, investment ready because they've got validated technology. There are startups who have got commercial agreements with these corporates. Um, but also uh, we've shown, we've defined innovation for, for these companies. And we've given them a, we've given them a, a direction as to where, as to where to take. They're very interesting because um, the challenge, uh, you know, I was doing a bit of research before talking to you guys and, and, and they're the biggest challenges with innovation is, of course, that I'd like to find out how do you measure innovation or what are the parameters, yeah. but also uh, appetite for risk. And how do you, especially when you're talking to governments and larger yeah. corporates, you know, the smaller brands who are coming up, that's understandable, but to see the corporates and governments. So how do you measure innovation? Are there any parameters and the appetite for risk, how do you train them to be a bit more risk-friendly? I think um, certainly before, before I came into the, the startup world, my, my um, shameful background in advertising and marketing <laughs> for many, many years, um, working with, with big global organisations, what generally happened is when organisations wanted to innovate, they would um, get people who would talk about lean uh, or innovation or disruption, they would spend lots of money on labs. Um, and they would buy in innovators who would come in and show shiny stuff that had absolutely no business value whatsoever. A lot of the telcos used to do this. They used to create apps for you know, users that didn't exist. They used to solve pro problems for problems that no one had. Um, and the challenge, I think, was is that the startups that they would bring in or the technologies they'd bring in and the way that was managed, because it didn't solve any business problems, it never went anywhere. It was a huge failure time and time and time again. I think we're still recovering from the hangover of people having innovation labs and innovation departments that actually created no value. Um, I think the second part of that is that startups were then becoming very hesitant about working with, uh, with corporates or trying to commercialize that technology with corporates because they would go into a long procurement process, they would invest a huge amount of time, over-invest in order to get contracts mm -hmm. and in invariably they, they would never pay off um, and simple things that we find time and time again a lot of the corporates that we work with who have uh, startup incubators or programs or ways of working sometimes you know, 
the, the legal setup they have or the procurement setup or even the, the payment terms aren't in the startup's favour. So one of the, the big ones we work with, they pay 90 days after a milestone. So if you're a small tar- startup investing in technology, you're potentially investing 20, 50, 100,000 pounds in anything for a corporate which may or may not come up and you're being paid six, seven, eight months later. Um, the entire model doesn't work. The entire model doesn't work. Um, and what we found is innovation has always been a thing that no one really knows what to do with. I think off uh, the second uh, cultural hangover that we're still trying to battle is that um, when lots of young, I, I sound very cynical, but when lots of young, lean reading people came in to run the innovation departments, it was back in the day when you know, it's okay to fail and fail fast became a, a cultural buzzword. It was almost acceptable for companies to invest in things that wouldn't go anywhere. And I think that's something we've always battled against. I think there's huge amounts of value in pulling the plug early if something doesn't work, but you need to make sure that there's market traction, it's the right solution, you've got the right brief, and you've done that due diligence to first know whether or not to invest. If that doesn't work, then then pull it, of course. And that, that's the failure point. But a lot of people wait two, three years, and hundreds of thousands or millions of pounds before they, they pull the plug. And then under the banner of innovation, it's okay to fail. Um, that money gets lost. And so I think it comes on to, to measurability from our perspective. Innovation can mean lots of lots of things to lots of different people. Inherently, it has to create business value. That's either by reducing operational costs or reducing the process or improving the process or creating new revenue streams or new products. It's, it's the process by which you take a more untraditional approach to create business value. Mm. Um, and that might be through a technology, a product, it might be through... Uh, culturally changing your organization but you can measure the impact that innovation has if you apply it or align it to a business problem and, and a clear definition right mm. so uh, one of the things we always ask our clients is what is the vision here you know you want to innovate for what purpose what does the company need to look like in and we're not talking 10 years we're talking three to five years based on that vision we can help them carve a definition and with that definition of innovation comes, okay, well, if we are defining innovation as being either create new business models, change our working processes, uh, whatever your definition of innovation or commercialization of ideas, inherently that becomes measurable. If, if it's about new business models, it's how many successful revenue driving business models did we explore, launch, um, how much revenue did we drive? Um, if it's about changing working processes, it's what is, what's, what's our incremental uplift in efficiency, what's our incremental uplift in revenue, what's our cost saving. These things become measurable only when we have that definition. After definition comes exploration. We know what we, know what we want to be with the vision. We know what the definition of innovation is and what, the, what we're being measured against. Let's go and explore. What are the technologies available? Who are the people who are doing interesting things? Who can we work with? How can we work with them? So these are core questions that can be answered before we come on to the next stage, which is collaboration. So we inherently believe that for an, for an organisation to become, quote-unquote, innovative, it's got to start with the people. But to break that status quo, you've got to bring in external innovators and work with them in the right way. So there's mutual value. So collaboration is, is the next phase that we take them through. But because we've got those KPIs that we've been measured against, then we know we're going to work with the right people in the right way. 
And over a period of collaboration comes integration. That's the next phase, which is inherently measurable. Together, through collaboration, we've created something really interesting, right? And we created it because we know why we're doing it. We know what we're trying to achieve with it, uh, with this mutual value for both you as an innovator and I as a corporate. How do we now integrate this into my business processes? How are you going to integrate what we do into your business processes? Because then, inevitably, we come to what is the crux of this, and that's commercialization. And that's the bit where we've created new value as part of this collaboration, facilitated in a, in a pragmatic way. We've created new value. How do we commercialize this? And that's when we start to see the revenue metric go up. What we, uh, what we can't do is, and what nobody can do at this stage, is clearly give you an ROI on innovation. You can in three to five years, if you put the foundations in place now, but in between there are a whole host of metrics that show that will show positive value to the company. The harder metrics, new business models, incremental uplifts, efficiency, all the softer metrics. Uh, uh, your your staff is how how much how much more trained your staff are to uh, or your team are your colleagues are to to new ways of working, how open they are to new technology. But I think over time, what companies should really be looking for here and what they should really should be measuring is um, how innovation is becoming a way of life rather than just a division within a business. It's interesting. And that's, that, that's the core metric they should be trying to measure here. It's interesting about way of life because, you know, by what you guys just said, you guys are working with the big boys, you're trying to make them more efficient, uh, take them away from the whole lean startup, you know, multiple experiments and... Um, so, to clarify we're not trying to take them away I no. suppose what we're trying to get people away from is, is phoning in innovation and Gary just because right. you've, uh, you've read this book and, and can talk about disruption doesn't give you the ability to run innovation or to create a more innovative business I think what we find time and time again um, there are we should be very careful here there are, there are two types of innovation direct innovation um, people, people who have you know, come up from the startup world or have been in that smaller business or, or newer ways of working sphere that have then gone into an organisation and they bring with them sometimes yeah, great talent, great great ambition and um, great learnings from some of the, the best people. What they don't have is the ability to find a, a corporate business problem, understand how how the cogs work in a big organisation, understand that actually department budgets and politics really define everything that a corporate do, does so much more than anything else. And then you get the other camp, which is, I think, where we probably work better with is people who have come up through business, understand the uh, the value and the opportunity of, uh, of innovation and understand the complexities of how you embed that in a business. And the ways that they might do that might be through you know, a big e-com, it might be through lean, some of the lean methodologies might be through A-B test, might be whatever that is. Those are, those are tactics, but they understand that you need to change a lot more than... Yeah. It's um, very interesting. Sorry to jump down your throat. No, no, no. no, no, no. <laughs> right. no right. It's, it's interesting. But go on. You, you no, I was just gonna, I mean, the, the, the lean, we've got, to be, we've got to be really careful with our terms here, right? Lean methodology is how companies should be doing things, not what they should do. Right? So, um, 
most companies and most uh, most innovation directors, uh, mo people who are responsible for budgets, are looking for lean strategy within within what they do, within their function. Inevitably, this needs to become business as usual for them. But to get to that point, it's it's a huge, it's a mammoth task. Given mm. to Paul's point, there's existing budgets, there's existing KPIs, there's ex existing ways of working. So um, we often we often get called up, say, look, we need to apply lean strategy to this. Um, so that, that's, that's that's a starting point, but that's definitely not that's not the end point. The end point still needs to be about commercialization. The but the way we do that is through lean. It's very exciting. Yeah. It's very exciting. And the it's just kind of it might be difficult for you guys, but but just kind of try. Okay, okay, <laughs> okay. Um, how about um, when will you tell? Because you work both sides of the spectrum, corporates yeah. and startups. Yeah. So when will you tell a corporate? Pull the plug. The strategy is not working. Mm. There's a bias of your invested time and money. Yeah. What is the quantifiable, measurable time or money? Mm. Similar for the startup community. You know, a couple of young hustlers sort of you know pushing themselves, coming mm. up with code, invested, maybe got a couple of seed rounds. Yeah. You know, Series A and stuff. Where is the point you tell them pull the plug? It's not working. Validation, and that starts from day one. So let's, let's, let's start from the startup point of view on this one. What we find is people take a technology first approach, founders take a technology first approach, a product first approach. They get to a point with a product that they invested time, effort, money, blood, sweat and tears to the sacrifice of their, their work-life balance and their families to create a product that nobody really wants. Right? This happens all the time. And we, we hear statistics like 95% of startups fail and... But we have to ask, ask ourselves, why is that? The other type of entrepreneur will identify a problem. And before they create a solution, they start to validate immediately. Is this a solution that A, people want? B, is this problem big enough that, this, that, that they're going to take any form of solution? So some problems just aren't worth solving right now, right? My, in terms of a list of priorities that somebody has, a potential customer has, um, you know, I, I normally give the example of, I really hate it, right, when you take butter uh, or margarine out of the fridge, right, and it's really hard to, it's hard to spread. Is that a problem worth solving? Would I, would I fork out a fortune for that? Probably not. So we can all find problems, but not all problems are worth solving. That's also butter <laughs> billion pound industry yeah, <laughs> uh, although if anyone wants that do you, you know, they, 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 <laughs> the point is this is um, you, can, you can validate a, a concept uh, or what we call a value proposition even before we uh, reinvest any time or money or effort in, in, the, in the technology but then validation is not something you do it's not a point in time activity as the business keeps evolving as problems keep evolving, as the, as the technology and the product, but also the business model around the product, you know, the way that we're going to work with customers keeps changing. That needs consistent validation. And that's when there needs to be an ongoing strategy. So, that, so if a startup is ticking all or most of the validation boxes, and the second component to that is if something is invalidated, 
how do we validate that, right? How do we kind of rectify that? And that's where iterative design comes in. Um, then they are more likely to be investable or partnerable or, or they can create something that will have an inevitable success. If we find that some solu that solutions are being invalidated more so than being validated, then it's okay to pull the plug. Either re reiterate or from a, from a startup point of view or from a corporate point of view, pull the plug. But inevitably, this comes with having a very, very clear link to the sector, to the market and the sector you're in, right? Because that's, in, that's who is going to validate uh, your, your product. I think we find time and time again, there are, there are two types of startups. One that, um, I'll see if I can put this correctly, people find a solution, they build a solution, and they invest lots of money, and then they go out to the market to try and find a problem that it solves. And that's really difficult to try and commercialise because you've built a technology, a thing, a service, and then trying to sort of post-rationalise who might want it and how it might pay. You're, you're literally throwing wall at the mud at the wall and seeing what sticks. Um, throwing, throwing wall at the mud. Um, the second one is uh, the second type of entrepreneur who come from lots of different industries where there's a classic problem that they find either in their industry, in their life, from somewhere else. And they build a solution around it. And that's usually, not always, a lot easier to try and commercialise because there's a clear market. If someone's got a problem, invariably lots of other people might, might do it. I think what we find time and time again is that people, um, and you know, I've, I've experienced this with, with a, one of my own businesses, when you find something that you want to solve, you have an idea for a business, you take it to your friends and your friends go, oh, it's great, awesome. And you don't get that, mm. that really critical uh sincere validation mm. um and people do validate with their friends or, or people who are nicer than they possibly could be and suddenly they spend tens of thousands of pounds and or they go out to find people who will like their product yeah right? exactly so we see that a lot as well there's a lot of uh, inherent bias in, in but just just your point there, there is one sector that we work with uh where yeah. people develop the solutions first and then look for the problems but that's for a very good reason and that's within the world of science so the motivations of science is very different, right? The motivation of science is to change the world. Let's, let's create new discoveries. So they create solutions which can then, you then start to think about where do we apply this? And what we're really talking about is deep tech and deep science. So that's one sector that sits below what we know as a tech world, mm -hmm. which you create that solution first. But that's not, that's the technology might exist, the, the discoveries and the, the research might exist, but that business layer doesn't necessarily exist on that. So, um, one more example, actually, is a, a startup that we've worked with, um, a, a data house in South Africa. We met them in the insurance world, um, they're now working on healthcare um, through one of our clients, and we're potentially about to work with them in, in a retail context as well. So for them, how they started their business is very different to what they've become, but thinking about the different applications and, and taking a step back, you can you can find lots of people who potentially want the problem. I, th I think... There is a slight caveat to all of this, is that nothing quite beats perseverance. Um, if you look at Airbnb as an example, there's plenty of places, plenty of times in their history where they could have quite conceivably pulled the plug and they probably should have done. But actually by changing their business model and what they did and how they did it multiple times, they finally got product market fit and, mm. and got that scale. But they, they you know, scrambled for years before they got it. I think um, particularly with corporates, it's a really interesting challenge because innovation, as, as we've talked about, can be lots of different things to a government or a um, or a corporate. 
innovation as a service for me is finding out what the business problems are within the organisation and finding a slightly different way or different approach mm. to solve those. And what we find is that if the innovation department is in, or people are embedded across the business unit at a senior level and can go to a, a marketeer and go, what are you trying to achieve? Okay, why don't we try two or three different ways to test that? If they're working to the same, same brief but solving in a slightly different way, sometimes they'll fail and that's fine because yeah, most of the most marketing hemorrhages money um, and failures are, are fine. It's, it's part of the TV media mix. It just happens. It's failure for a good reason. It's failure for a good reason. But as long as though you're measuring the success or failure of trying different solutions, mm. um, that's okay. The second part, which is diff- more difficult and tricky, and we have a couple of our corporate clients, is that they want to invest money to to see what technology trends are out there in the market. They don't have a business case for that yet, but potentially they could in three or five years. They want to try and meet people that are going to be changing the industry and they'll find an application for them. And that's really difficult to defend on a PL because you're investing money on a solution that you don't have a problem for yet. And we always talk about Greg and Janet, the, the grey accountants in, in the basement, that at the end of every year are having to you know, trying to claw out budget from people's lines and you've got to be able to defend an innovation budget. Um, and so the point at which you failed, I think if you don't have some form of measurement strategy for innovation, you failed already. If there's if there's no way to say, okay, we spent you know, millions on this, but actually we can see value in terms of um, something that isn't spreadsheetable in terms of you know, we've embedded a new culture, we've tried new technologies, we see what the, what market trends are going uh, to be realised in, in our industry in a few years' time. Mm. It's difficult, but arguably there's there's a value in that investment. What we find is that um, innovators or, or people that bring flashy stuff in to demonstrate that they're being innovative with no business purpose, they should be... Yeah, I think, I think you know, we talk about Greg and Janet, Greg and Janet, the accountants who have to justify every action. Um, the, the reason they are having to justify every action on a spreadsheet and inevitably add a commercial gain to every, everything that's done in the business is because that's the way business works. Now, what tech has done, it's created a new, entirely new way of looking at business where the value of business is in is, is in the technology which will be realised at a later date. So I guess the point I'm making is that there is a culture shift that needs to occur within the business for innovation in, in and of itself to thrive. There needs to be a culture change or a change of thinking that needs to occur within business. But that has to be done without disrupting business as usual. Now that's a challenge. That's a challenge that anyone who's in the space of innovation needs to try and, and resolve. The second thing is if you are going to fail and following on from, from what Paul was saying, you need to know why you failed, right? So if you've taken all the right steps to measure and validate and make sure this aligns with what you're doing, if you then fail, there's a huge learning in that. So how are you managing these learnings to ensure that your next venture or your next in initiative in innovation, you've, redu- you've de-risked it, you've reduced that chance of failure. And the reason I make that point in particular is what we find is, there's a tendency amongst both startups and corporates and generally in business where you, you attempt an initiative and any failure within that initiative means that the entire objective is 
canned or that initiative is never rerun. Rather than thinking about, okay, well, how do we now rerun this initiative and start again? So from a startup point of view, I'll keep it very, very simple because we see this all the time. We hear things like, we've tried Facebook, we've tried LinkedIn, it didn't, it, we're not going to try it again. But the mindset should be, what we did on Facebook, what we did on LinkedIn didn't work, how can we make this work now? Arguably a small example, but the same applies to larger corporates who say, okay, we've tried this large initiative of working with innovators or trying to create a new business model. It didn't work for us. Let's redefine the entire objective. Let's rethink what innovation means to us when that's not the way to necessarily approach the problem. It's how do we rectify this initiative, which was the best initiative for us, so it doesn't fail going forward. I think for me, there's, um, that's where I get my soapbox, so I apologise in advance. Um, but I think with, with corporates particularly, everyone, a lot of them who've talked about innovation is just about to fail fast, to me it's fail early. Um, you can work out very quickly whether or not an idea is going to fly. You can validate that with the market pretty much overnight, which is what we do with our startups and we can absolutely do with corporates as well. And a lot of the corporates we work with now, now do. Um, and whereas a startup will need to go through that journey of coming up with a kernel idea, getting seed investment, bigger seed, series A, and, and continuously ask money to develop that idea because it's grounded in a business case. I think a lot of times corporates have the luxury of not needing to do that. Mm. Um, the challenge is, is that when a corporate also launches as something big and it's failed, it's not just the hard cost of the marketing, the PR, the agency, the media, the, the TV costs, it's actually the combined cost of all the people that have worked on this heard of an idea and the opportunity cost is is huge and the opportunity cost and i remember um with a telco i used to work with um back when i was a marketeer they had innovation labs as i say they would come up with apps that no one wanted or flashy things that didn't solve a problem or they'd come up with something good but by not understanding the business dynamics the marketing department never assigned budget to it or it, it would just never go anywhere and I remember having quite a heated debate with someone quite senior about um, the, the importance of it. For, for me, if you look at every single phone tariff that we're on, the amount of phone tariffs that you need to sell to people and the, the cost of doing that for the hundreds of thousands of pounds for a tertiary idea, actually the opportunity cost is millions and you're having to sell to millions and millions of people just to, to create this idea. And I think, again, with, with innovation, um, you can, you can stop a bad idea in, in its tracks very, very early, and you need to. And I think what, in, what big corporates need to do is almost get people to think much more entrepreneurially as if the money that they're spending is their own money and not mm -hmm. you know, the bank of mm -hmm. somewhere else, um, and start to put numbers behind innovation. Because they'll suddenly find that a slightly different way of working to solve an idea can actually create huge amounts of value, and they can, they can assign a, a value to it. And, Again, back from my marketing days, um, trying to defend brand budget uh, should have been a lot harder than it actually mm. was. People spent millions, and we worked in a corporate world, but we spent tens of millions on, on vacuous brand ads that we couldn't ever assign or attribute an actual value to the business of. But because the marketing departments had been established for decades and the marketing department did brand, um, it was always a lot easier to justify. And the, the tricky thing that innovation has is that done correctly, it can be as important for a big corporate 
as brand, as sales, as anything else. But because it feels quite intangible um, and people aren't used to doing it or they don't understand, they, you know, they don't need to think about the numbers in a way that uh, an entrepreneur or an entrepreneur does, mm. um, it makes it harder. And then you've got people who just don't understand big corporates. Um, as we were saying earlier, you know, flying around drones and reception because that's innovation, right? That won't work, and I think there's always going to be a bias against innovation or working differently when that's the type of innovation that corporates are better than. There's an interesting about way of life because, you know, by what you guys just said, you guys are working with the big boys, you're trying to make them more efficient, uh, take them away from the whole lean startup, you know, multiple experiments and... Um, so just clarify we're not trying to take them away I no. suppose what we're trying to get people away from is, is phoning in innovation and going just because right. you've, uh, you've read this book and, and can talk about disruption doesn't give you the ability to run innovation or to create a more innovative business I think what we find time and time again um, there are we should be very careful here there are, there are two types of innovation direct innovation um, people, people who have you know, come up from the startup world or have been in that smaller business or, or newer ways of working sphere that have then gone into an organisation and they bring with them sometimes yeah, great talent, great great ambition and um, great learnings from some of the, the best people. What they don't have is the ability to find a, a corporate business problem, understand how, how the cogs work in a big organisation, understand that actually department budgets and politics really define everything that a corporate does so much more than anything else. And then you get the other camp, which is, I think, where we probably work better with is people who have come up through business, understand the, uh, the value and the opportunity of, uh, of innovation and understand the complexities of how you embed that in a business. And the ways that they might do that might be through you know, a big e-com, it might be through lean, some of the lean methodologies might be through A-B test, might be whatever that is. Those are, those are tactics, but they understand that you need to change a lot more than... Yeah. It's um, very interesting. Sorry innovation. to jump down your throat. No, 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 no. <laughs> no. You're right. You're right. You're right. It's, it's interesting. But go on. You, you no, I was just going mean, the, to... The, the, the we've, we've got to be really careful with our terms here, right? Lean methodology is how companies should be doing things, not what they should do. Right. So um, most companies and most uh, most innovation directors, uh, mo people who are responsible for budgets, are looking for lean strategy within within what they do, within their function. Inevitably, this needs to become business as usual for them. But to get to that point, it's it's a huge, it's a mammoth task. Given well, to Paul's point, there's existing budgets, there's existing KPIs, there's existing ways of working. So um, we often we often get called up to say, look, we need to apply lean strategy to this. Um, so that, that's, that's, that's a starting point, but that's definitely not that's not the end point. The end point still needs to be about commercialization, but the way we do that is through lean. There are entrepreneurs who have taken... Uh, a, a, a true belief on how the world should be and turn that into uh, a business. Social entrepreneurs. Uh, both Paul and I, we, we, we run our business based and our lives uh, on, on a certain set of morals, which is one of the earlier conversations that, that we had. Um, I really admire those who are, uh, who are tackling issues such as global hunger, 
poverty. There are entrepreneurs out there who are working on how to reduce social isolationism uh, amongst the elderly in our, in, our, in, in our society, who are trying to work out how do we um, redistribute uh, wealth in a way that's more just. Uh, there are entrepreneurs out there who are looking at climate change and how we can actually make uh, how, we, how we can make a new way of sustainable living uh, commercially sustainable. I have true admiration for for, for these entrepreneurs. Yeah. The expenses to set up a business is huge. As a service, we were paying for people. As a technology, you obviously need to pay for people and hardware potentially. Um, and at the end of the first year, um, what yeah, what we took home at the end. Of yeah, it was roughly the same. We used to take home a month when we were at quite senior level positions. Um, and to me, that's bravery as well. Yeah. It's, it's taking the plunge and um, you know, starting a business when you've, you've worked out your personal life to an extent that you can afford to start a business. I actually didn't. I, was, I just finished a very expensive house renovation that went wrong. I was flat broke. And I think that gave me the appetite to close <laughs> business more so than I'd ever had in my career. But I've got him anyway. Yeah. <laughs> because I had I'd, um, everything to lose. So I, yeah, I was slightly more aggressive than probably I like, was done was at other times. And I think um, Ryan's point yeah, we did go away for three or four days about a year ago, and we, we year and a half ago, we tried to work out what we wanted from the business. And we had two or three solid days in an isolated house in Greece trying to work out yeah, the five-year plan. And we'd started very much going, what, you know, what do each other want to get out of the business? And it was, it was um, working on solid business problems that we love. It's working with things that we're deeply passionate about. It's travel, it's, you know meeting great people, it's creating an impact on the world and so on, and a few others, but those are our personal principles to the company. We then laid out a map and spent three solid days focusing on the business, so we had two parts of the business then, how do we grow them, what do we do, what's team structure, resourcing, blah, blah, blah. And then we created this huge plan, really intricate plan, we were just about to start writing it up to bring back to present the team, we went back to those initial principles and realised that they just didn't align at all, and actually we were building two agencies, two structures, which um, we didn't want to do because we realised the minute we get people, we stop working with clients, we start managing people and, you know, that, growing that kind of went against the grain of why we started this in the, in the first place. And I think that's really important and uh, I've been having a conversation with another startup the last couple of days about exactly this. What, what is the business you want to be in? Why? Are you in it to make money and sell out in two years' time? Are you in this to, to build a huge company with you know, hundreds or tens of hundreds of people are you in this because um, you know you you want to run your own business that might be a lifestyle business it might be something else but actually you both need to be really aligned on that from day one because that's going to influence the type of business you, you run and, and how you get it and I think mm. it, it took us a year or two to have that conversation but I don't think we really needed that in the first couple of years because we instinctively knew what each other wanted and I think we've we more so than most co-founders I think we've got a really good and silent gauge on, on where we are and what we need and, and do I and do I complete you Paul you do complete me <laughs> <laughs> um, no basically yeah. but you know we starting a business is brave anyway right starting a business uh, re, quote unquote rebelling against the sector you're from is brave fight the power fight the power <laughs> um, but at the same time um, there's a big difference between being brave and being reckless mm. right 
And I think this is something that we see a lot in, in the world of startups, but also in the world of corporates, um, where money is being thrown down the drain. And the difference is quite simple. Bravery, uh, and, and between bravery and recklessness. So we like to work with people who take that risk, but we, we need to ensure that they are being brave behind that layer of making good decisions and making, and making decisions that they can be confident in versus being, being reckless. So we did, we were brave, but we were okay with that bravery. And Paul mentioned how like, we were taking home one twelfth of our original salary from the industry. That's very true. And it was very, very hard life. Mm. Um, but we were okay with that because um, our decision, we had confidence in our decisions that was rooted in reality. It's so. interesting you say that. And talking about uh, conscious decision-making brings us to the point of your success so far. Is it um, hard work, destiny, or luck? Or is it a combination of something? It's a really good question. I think, um, I think Ryan and I are destiny brought us together. Now, I, yeah, I think meeting Ryan, going for that coffee three, three and a half years ago and having, having a chat about the state of the nation, and, and that was destiny, I think. Um, that sounds really selfie. But you know, it was it was it was meant to be. It was it was on plan. Starting the business and the way the business started was definitely destiny. I think um, we are unashamable, hardcore opportunists. I think we can smell an opportunity and, and we can capitalise on that. I don't necessarily. We've been lucky a couple of times, but I think we've always put ourselves in a position um, to um, to be in the right place at the right time. To have had the conversations, and I think um, you do need. You do need a couple of lucky breaks. We, we've had a couple of lucky breaks. We've had some horrendously unlucky um, calamities forced upon us. Not forced upon us. We've we've been unlucky sometimes. Um, but I think you you do make your own opportunities, make your own mm. destinies. And yeah, we've when we first set out, we didn't really know exactly what we were doing. We had an idea, and we spent the first three or four months literally meeting with about a hundred people for coffee and just talking to people mm. and when people ask us for coffee irrespective of how busy we are or how many days in a row we've worked we'll always make time to meet people because I think we're great believers that, that, that people make opportunities and yeah. I think working you know, working with the values that we've got being ethical not being a dick <laughs> consciously so and going out of your way to, to help people, irrespective if they're an apprentice or on the C-suite, um, I think has created huge amounts of opportunity for yeah, us. Yeah, very true. I mean, I think, think it's very genuinely so as well. It's like, I mean, luck is one of these things that, you know, you create your own luck, right? And, I, and I'll, I'll, that sounds like a very, a very cliche thing to say, but the reality is, is that you're not going to get lucky un unless you put yourself in a situation to get lucky. Mm. Sounds like dating advice, right? But really, what I'm, what I'm saying is um, opportunities only come from other people. So those hundreds of coffees that we went to, right, arguably, we could say the opportunities we got were luck. But were they or, did, or was it because we actually we, we got ourselves out there to, to explore the sector, to tell people what we're doing? And inevitably, then we started to, 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 to get, you know, the, the right connections that turned into commercial agreements. So luck... Look, luck will only happen if you put yourself in a position to, to, to get luck. Um, perseverance, uh, resolve, 
um, and being open to being wrong, right, is the, one of the biggest rationale or one of the biggest factors of our success, right? Uh, we needed to be very open-minded about refining our own business model. The principles have always remained the same, and 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 that's uh, that comes from another factor, which is experience. But we'll come on to that. But we needed to be open about about where we need to be changing our own ideas, and sometimes that's really hard to yeah. do, right? But you have to take that step back sometimes and go, okay, well, what we are doing is not the ideal way of doing things, or what we are doing is wrong. Um, and then, the, the and, and I've touched on it just now, experience is, is, is another factor of our success, right? So, you know that you're uh, probably right, or the right time is right to start exploring your own venture when you're looking around in your current sector or at the world and saying, I can do this better. And I think that's a key thing. But the problem is this, is everyone always thinks they can, at any given time, do things better. And that, again, you need to say that step back and go, okay, I think I can do this thing better than everyone else. Can I really, really do it better? And do I really, really know enough about what I'm doing to be able to have that confidence? So that you, need to, you have to ask yourself those two questions. And what we're really saying is, do you have the experience? And if the answer is no, that's absolutely okay, <laughs> right? Because suddenly what you've got is a direction of what experience you need in order to beat to get a level of confidence um, and in the result of that I think the result of that is that you do great work and I think in, no matter all, all of these all of these factors of success all, all boil down to look the reason we're still in business and growing and working on better and better and bigger and bigger projects um, is because we do great work Right. So you need to consistently be thinking about how am I budgets are important and money you're making is important, but the focus of the business needs to be how am I actually having an impact on the world? And that world, I don't mean well from a, a global sense, I mean well in the world that you're in. You need to be having a real making a real change there. If you do that, then your business will, will have a, will scale automatically. Then your marketing activities, all essential. PR activities have their place, they become the accelerators of your growth rather than the reason for your growth. Have confidence, but also, I mean, we, I don't think either of us lack confidence. <laughs> you yeah, yeah, exactly. yeah. Um, but I think behind, you've got to have something behind that confidence. I, I think one other sort of life lesson I'd give out when we first went and, and met people and still do when we have coffees with people, I think one of the first questions we always ask is, you know, what's keeping you up at night and actually listening to people's yeah. problems. I think one thing that we've been very successful at is being able to understand people's problems, be able to, to sniff out a solution and help them with that. I suppose on the flip side of that, it's been quite difficult for us to productize what we do. And I suppose if we were a bit more focused and had a, you know, if we we're a, a creative agency, a marketing agency, a product, a service, a technology, it'd be quite easy for us to go out and not impose it on them, but just go, this is what we do, take it or leave it. I suppose the service element for us has, has been incredibly for, you know, fortuitous for us, but also it can be a bit restrictive because we kind of want to help lots of people do lots of different things. So, How would you define a um, <coughs> soundbite? What would you say for people who are watching it? Um, who is a brave hustler? Is there a definition of a brave hustler in today's world, in today's business environment we live in? 
and as a society. Donald Trump. Amazing. <laughs> uh, um, you got. To, you you have to be able to take risks, right? So the common factor between the reckless, the brave, the common factor amongst entrepreneurs of all descriptions are, and those who successfully manage to change the world is, um, <coughs> you have to be able to take risks. It's just the way that you take the take the risks that will define what you do this time next year. Right, so the, the very first thing is you have to be able to take risks. The second is <coughs> you have to try and break the status quo of how you do things. So um, this is, you know, I, I touched on growth hacking as a mindset. Growth hacking as a mindset is about using the same channels that everybody uses, the same tools that everybody uses, the Facebooks, the LinkedIn's of the world, the same project management tools, the same measurement tools from Mixpanel to Google Analytics, whatever that might be, um, but using them in a slightly more creative way. You need to get creative, you need to, you need to try and think about different ways of being able to use these tools. So break that status quo about how things are done at the moment. And the only way you can you can really do that is by having a very key principle in your mind. And that's, I want to get the maximum possible value from every single thing that I'm doing, every single thing that I'm using. If you say, I want to get the maximum possible value from something as simple as a Facebook campaign, I assure you, you'll think of that campaign in a very, very different way. And what you'll do is you'll start to re you'll start to work out new ways of, of using things. And you need to understand technology. You need to understand technology, irrelevant what business you're in, because technology is the gateway to be able to be more creative in the way that you do things. But, uh, and I guess the, the, the last point from, from on, on what does it take to be a hustler is, look, you can be the most technical person in the world. You know, I'm from a technical background. Um, and you might come from a world where you're not required to necessarily have those con those commercial conversations with people because you've never needed to. And you, you, you've been successful in, in your chosen function without needing to. But to be a brave hustler, you need to be able to articulate things in a, in a compelling way. You need to be able to articulate things in a persuasive way. And you need to understand uh, how to explain the value that you're bringing in a way that will resonate with you as a potential client, as a potential investor. That is a learned skill set. And for, some, for someone from my background, the technical background, is a very, very tough mindset to kind of try and adopt. But it's absolutely fundamental and essential if you want to succeed in the world of commercializing technology, the world of commercializing innovation, to be a brave hustler. I think for me, um, there are three things. One is um, perseverance. That's in terms of perseverance in, in producing your product, your service, your thing, but also perseverance in your social life as well. Because when you become a hustler, the, the boundaries between work and life basically get broken down completely. You're living for months on end and absolutely no money. Um, you spend your weekends in the office. It's If you love what you're doing, that's fine, but you need perseverance. Sack one is creative, creativity. Um, and we find the people that are the most successful can look at a problem with five or ten different solutions, and that's creativity in um, the product they're producing or the technology they're producing, the uh, their revenue models, how they speak to people, look at different partnerships, look at how they can 
find different ways to, to bring their, their, their thing to life. Um, and probably a bit counterintuitive, just being able to listen to people, talk to people and listen to people and have that genuine curiosity, uh, curiosity I think would be my third one. Not listening. Um, yeah, people who who explore what out, what's out there, speak to people in the industry, find out what's going on, be curious about problems, trends, everything else. So curiosity, perseverance, yeah. and the third one. <laughs> the other, leave your ego at the door as well is the other is the other key one. So we we do see a very very distinct, and we worked with hundreds of startups in hundreds of capacities, but there's a very clear distinction between those who do well and those who who think they're going to do well but don't and and humility is a very very important but often missing um sort of value in our in our in in our world Um, leave your ego at the door it's very very possible there are other people out there who have better solutions than you it's very very possible for you to work with other people you just need to be open to that possibility and be transparent be confident um don't be a dick yeah right supposedly don't be a dick. I mean, it's, you, there's, no, there's, no, there's no need for that. The world, is, especially the entrepreneurial world, is a tiny, tiny, often very incestuous world. Everybody knows each other. Um, if you do a great job and if you're a good person adding real value, people will know about it. If you're the opposite, people will know about it.